Well, let me say good morning to you again. My name is Chad. I'm the student and, and worship pastor here. And every once in a while, I have the opportunity to come and speak. And the good news for you is, is that I'm used to speaking to teenagers. And so I know I have a short time to get that in. So that's good for you guys on the Sundays that I that I uh, preach. Kind of the bad news is I, I feel more comfortable with a guitar, but I didn't think that would be appropriate. So so we're going to we're going to have a good time today. But if you're a first time guest with us, we'd like to, again, welcome you and hope that you'll uh, stick around for a minute after we get done here and let us uh, shake your hand and get to get to know you and introduce ourselves. The Huffington Post um, had an article um, a little while back about a Zimbabwean pastor who had convinced his congregation that he had holy pens. Now, when I say pens, I mean the writing kind of pens, not the poking kind of pens, but holy pens. And so he had convinced his congregation that if the students, if if these students would use the pens, that they would get good grades in school. Now, ironically, he had a, a variety of pens, all of different prices. And so the, the more expensive the pen the better the grade, of course. Funny how that, that works out like that. The pastor's name was, was Sham. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a minute. Sham Hungwe. And Sham Hungwe proclaimed to his congregation that they are anointed pins, and I declare passes when your children set for exam. One of the uh, quotes from the congregants said, my son is not very bright, and I think this will help him. He was uh, a candidate for Zimbabwe's Father of the Year, I think. Uh, But, uh, you know, so some of the students, some of the students actually said, you know, using these pens, I, I got better grades. And others reported no noticeable difference uh, at all with the pens. We are vulnerable to deception. It's just the way that our heart is wired. And especially when we're told something that we really want to believe. We really want to believe this. And it doesn't matter how outrageous it is. If it is something that we want to be true and we want to believe, then we'll believe it. If you were here with us last week, Joe uh, kicked us off in our in our series on First uh, Timothy, our walk through First Timothy. And if you uh, have your Bibles, go ahead and make your way there now. We're going to be in First Timothy chapter one, verses three through seven. If you have a uh, one of the Bibles in the seat back, the black Bibles in front of you there, that's on page nine ninety one, and. Uh, if you don't have a, if you're here today and you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, please feel free to take that as our gift to you. So, First Timothy is a book that is written uh, for the for the church. Uh, it is written specifically, you know, is written to Timothy, but with uh, the church throughout the ages in mind. First and Second Timothy. 
Titus were among the last letters that, that Paul wrote. And they all address what the local church should look like. What the church should look like. What the priorities should be. Now, anytime we are looking at Scripture, you want to ask yourself, okay, is this prescriptive or descriptive? You've heard Joe and John use that term before from here. If, is this prescriptive or descriptive? And in 1 Timothy, um, we find both. It's, it tells us how do we live? How do we serve? How do we work together? And so, in these books, God has given us a message and He's also given us a method. And so, prescriptive and descriptive in these verses. So let's read them. Sarah just read them, but let's read them again. Get them in our heads. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so in looking at this letter to Timothy, uh, a young pastor in my Bible, the whole book of First Timothy takes up about about six pages. Okay, so in your Bible, maybe a little different. You have different font or whatever. I have large print because I need it. And uh, so, um, but in my Bible, it's six pages. So we'll just go with that. So six pages. If you're Paul and you're writing a letter, you got six pages to write a letter to Timothy, and you want to tell him, you want to start to give him a biblical grounding for ministry that's going to impact him, a way to do ministry that's going to help his congregation. Where do you start? There's many places you could start. Maybe you could start with, Timothy, love your people. Love the people that God has entrusted to you. Love them. It's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to, you know, love each other sometimes. But that's our, but that's our charge. Love your people. Or maybe he would start with Timothy. Pray for your people. Just be on your face. Praying for your people. Praying for their salvation. Praying that they would grow in the Word. Praying that they would grow in, in grace and love. Now, both of these things are incredibly important and good counsel. And I will say this, 
both of these things are things that your staff and elders do for you. Every Monday, staff meeting, we're praying for you. We're talking about the needs of the people. We're talking about how to better disciple people. And during our elders meetings, we're praying for you. We're praying for the congregation. We're praying that God would continue to move and work in your lives. So this is good counsel. And these are both things that that Paul gives Timothy elsewhere, but he doesn't start there. He starts with, well, let's read verse three and four again. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. If you're taking notes in your outline, in, the, in your bulletin there, if you got that, in the, number one, Paul is, is telling Timothy, fight to protect doctrine. Fight to protect doctrine. Paul is saying here, this is the, this is the, the, the first thing, this is important. Timothy, I want you, I want you to know this. You're, Teach your people not to teach or even listen to false doctrine. Now, that's how important this is. Why? Because Paul knows that false teaching and false doctrine lead to destruction. It leads to devastation in lives. The truth of the Word is for God's glory, but it's also for our good. And Paul knows this. It's, it's designed to draw us into a closer relationship with Him, and it's designed to draw us into a closer relationship with one another. It's designed to teach us how to live and work and function together. And so Paul knows this. Angie and I were blessed to serve at a, in a congregation for about 13 years in Smyrna. And during that time, we had a, a dear brother who was a, a new convert who was hungry for the Word, as hungry as anybody I've ever seen uh, for, for the word. This gentleman lost his job. He had uh, been working in the printing industry. And that industry is, even then, was declining. And so he lost his, his job uh, and just was having trouble finding another job. The economy during that time was, was really not good. And he was having, a trouble, having trouble finding another job. And during this time, he received counsel from a friend who claimed to be a believer that somehow this meant that he wasn't supposed to have a job. 
that God was telling him that this is God's way of saying, no, you need to live by faith alone. You need to speak, speak what you want out and, and it's going to come back. This word faith, it's going to come back to you. And so he's coming to church and he's teaching in our kids area and he's and he's serving. And then during the week, he's immersing himself in this TBN prosperity garbage, <laughs> lack of a better word. He's immersing himself in that false teaching. In the meantime, his mother-in-law is paying their mortgage. She's paying their, their utilities because she doesn't want her, her daughter and her kids and her grandkids to be out in the street. He's living on you know, government assistance and food stamps and believing the whole time that this is God providing for him. And it came to a head when he began to talk about it in congregation, not in a formal sense, but just in conversation that how blessed he was and how God was providing for him. And we had to call his brother in and go, no, this is not, this is, this is not of the word of God. In First Timothy, it says if a man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, is, is worse than an infidel. It, it is. You know, it's the Bible says if a man doesn't work, then neither shall he eat. We are this is something that's required of us. And so Paul's instruction here is don't allow God's people to be polluted with this false teaching. Don't allow God's people to fall for this deception. And when you look at verse five, we see in these in verse five, the reason that we have to fight for truth and what gives us the ability to do that. And verse five is where we're going to spend the majority of our of our time today. So let's look at that again. Verse five. Chapter one. The aim of our charge. Is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love. That's number two in your in your notes if you're taking notes. In another translation I looked at, it said the goal of our instruction is love, is to produce love. So the purpose of the church is to produce disciples. The purpose of the church is not to produce people who pray to prayer once upon a time. Or who know a nice array of Bible stories. Not even to get you to believe certain things. It's more than that. It's more, it's bigger than that. 
it is to produce in you love. It is to produce in you love. Now, ultimately, it is to glorify God. Everything we do and everything we're about is to glorify God. But in you, it is to produce love. Angie and I and the kids um, a couple weeks ago watched a movie, and I highly recommend this movie. Uh, it's called The Case for Christ. Now, there's a documentary out there that's a little more clinical, still very good, but the movie is a motion picture. It's a very good movie, and it's about the life or the conversion of um, Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel uh, was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. He was a devout atheist, and his wife became a believer. And they lived in uh, the Chicago area, um, and so she was befriended by a lady who brought her to church, and she ultimately became a believer. Now, this was just unacceptable for Lee. Uh, he was not going to raise his family uh, to be Christians, and he was in a quandary because he loved his wife. And so as a reporter, uh, as you would hope a reporter would do, he, he set out to find the facts. And what he wanted to set out, what he set out to find was he wanted to prove that the resurrection of Christ was a, was a fake, was a fraud. It never happened. Because if the resurrection of Christ is not true, then everything else crumbles. Everything else is a house of cards. And so he set out as a reporter did. He went to interview people. He, he, he interviewed uh, biblical historians. He, he interviewed uh, medical doctors. He, 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 he went through all the different theories of, of what could happen or how the resurrection could have been, uh, could have been faked or just a, a story or not, or not true. And ultimately, he failed. Every road that he went down led him to the realization that this really happened. This really happened. Jesus Christ died and rose again. This really happened. And so there's a scene in the, in the movie where his, he sets his wife on the couch, and I'm sorry I'm ruining this, but... You know, if you haven't seen it, but there's a scene in the movie where he sets his wife on the couch and he and he sits down and he's and he's pouring out all of this to her, how he's he's come to this realization. And it's taken him a long time because, again, he didn't want to believe it. He fought against believing it. And when he set his wife on the, on the couch, he said, but despite all of this evidence, that I found, despite all of these doctors and PhDs and everybody that I talked to, what really convinced me was you. You've changed. You're different. You're not the same person you were before you came to Christ. She loved him 
at a time when he wasn't very lovable. False teaching does not produce that. False worship does not produce that. Paul says, that's not what we're to be about. We're about we're to be about a love that produces a heart or, or truth. We're to be about a truth that produces a heart of love. The aim is love. Now, this sounds very familiar uh, because in Matthew 22. There was a teacher that came to Jesus. He was a teacher of the law. He was trained in the Torah, the Old Testament. And he asked Jesus a question, trying to trip Jesus up. He said, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? In other words, Jesus, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? And Jesus responded, love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything else hinges on that, hangs on that. And that's what Paul is saying here. The proof of God's grace at work in us is that we love God. And that we love our neighbor. The aim of our charge is love. Now, point number three. Where does that love come from? According to Paul. Where does that love come from, according to Paul? First, from a pure heart. Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. We just read, uh, Steve just read Psalm 51 uh, for us with the Old Testament reading. And this is a psalm, this is David He's pouring out his heart to God. And so, why, why is it that we need a pure heart? Because we are sinners. We are sinners. Our hearts are corrupt and depraved. And David knew what it meant to have a depraved heart. And if and if you're tracking along with that psalm and, and with that Psalm 51, he's pouring it out. He knew what it meant to take a, a, a woman that was not his wife and have an affair with her. 
and then send her husband to the front lines of the battle where he was sure to be killed. He knew what it meant and he's he's crying out. What is what is was it that he prayed? Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. We need to be changed by God before we are able to respond in love. You know, Lee Strobel was right to go after the, the resurrection. He was he was right to 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 start there because. It's true. If the resurrection didn't happen. If Jesus was not born of a virgin. Lived a sinless life. Died on a cross. And then raised again on the third day, if those things didn't happen then what are we doing here? But if they did happen, if it didn't happen, it's of no importance. If it did happen, it's of the utmost importance. It's of the utmost importance. And so, in order for us to work, to, to, to have our depraved hearts clean, Jesus Christ had to come and become sin and become and, and take our sin and exchange it for His righteousness. That's the, the great exchange. We need to be changed by God before we are able to truly, truly respond in love. Second, Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. Now, what is a good conscience? Well, we hear that word a lot, but, you know, what is it? One of the commentaries that I read this week put it this way. Uniformly, the New Test in the New Testament, this refers to an awareness of rightness and wrongness according to God's standards. I'll read that again. Uniformly. In the New Testament, this refers to an awareness of rightness and wrongness according to God's standards. The Chad Hunter commentary put it this way. You're not just flying around by the seat of your pants making stuff up as you go. You're not just flying around by the seat of your pants making stuff up as you go. Now, believe it or not, this is a common philosophy in our world today. Maybe they don't say it the way that I do, but 
That's pretty much what it means. And it's actually got a name. It's called situational ethics. Situational ethics. Colleges are te- have been teaching situational ethics since the 60s. And basically what situ- situation, I can't even say it. Situational ethics is basically says this. Society should not impose prefabricated standards on us. Love should just be, should just do the best thing in the situation in which it finds itself. Now, if you turn on the radio to any secular station, they're going to be preaching situational ethics. Do what you want to do, you know, whatever. All these songs. Situational ethics. In other words, if it feels good, if it feels right, do it. That's what the world is teaching us. But Paul is saying that the biblical standard is that there is no such thing as truth or love or there's no such thing as true love, sorry, there's no such thing as true love apart from truth. There is no such thing as true love apart from truth. Love knows what is right and what is wrong. And the Spirit of God in, in, in dwelling in us speaks to us what is right and what is wrong. But what is right and what is wrong is found right here. This is the standard that we are to live by. And unfortunately, in our world today, and even in our churches today, it's become popular to say, well, this little part of God's Word, I just really can't get on board with that. I really can't get on board with that. So I'm going to I'm gonna kind of overlook that. I'm sure God didn't mean that. I'm sure that's not what He really meant when He said this was uh, not good for us. When He said this was a sin. This form of situational ethics has found its way into the church. But that's not going to produce love. Because who is the arbiter of truth? When you when you decide I don't like what this says. Who becomes the arbiter of truth? You do. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't trust my little eight pound fallen brain to determine 
that I know better than the sovereign God. I hope you feel the same. Lastly, love comes from a sincere faith. Love comes from a sincere faith. And what does that mean? It means it's not swayed by false promises. It's not swayed by false doctrine. It's a faith that wholeheartedly embraces the promises of God. It's a faith that says, you know, I don't always understand everything that I read in here, but I know that God gave me this for His glory and for my good. And so I'm going to take it that God has my good in mind. And even though I don't understand it, I may not even agree with it. I'm going to stand on it. It's a faith that wholeheartedly embraces the promises of God contained in the Word of God. And so the goal of of our church, the goal of discipleship is, is to make disciples that love God and to make disciples that love others. Or as we say it here, to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. And we're going to endeavor to do that by gathering, growing, serving, and going. We're going to endeavor to do that together. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We're going to move into a time of communion. If our deacons would come forward. Our brother Paul in another place in Scripture, 1 Corinthians verse or chapter 10, verse 14, again is warning us about false worship. And he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, 
we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. We are one body. This table is not Providence's table. This is the Lord's table. And so if you are here this morning and you are a believer in Christ and you're a member of another church, then we invite you this morning to partake with us. But if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not yet a believer, and we would just ask that you would just let this pass and observe as this is a sacred time for us as believers. And so we're going to pray and observe the Lord's Supper. Father, Lord God, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for this word as imperfectly as it was delivered. You, Lord, um, are the one that grants us understanding. And Father, we thank you that you are good. And Lord, we do this in remembrance of you, of your son, Jesus. So, Father, Lord, let us think well, let us contemplate well on this as we observe this. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.